This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. You're listening to the Happy as a Mother podcast. Today, we are welcoming back Lindsay Hookway for part two of our holistic sleep episode. Lindsay is an experienced pediatric nurse, an international board certified lactation consultant, a holistic sleep coach, researcher, and responsive parenting advocate. Lindsay joined us on the podcast not too long ago to discuss her approach of holistic sleep, giving us a different narrative around infant sleep and how we approach it. And today she is back with us to discuss bed sharing and co-sleeping. In this interview, we unpack the difference between co-sleeping and bed sharing, how this has become such an underground or taboo topic in our society and culture, and also some guidelines and things to consider for co-sleeping and bed sharing in a safe way. If you didn't catch part one of my conversation with Lindsay, I encourage you to go back and listen. You'll get to learn a little bit more about Lindsay's story and learn more about her holistic sleep perspective. One of the things I really value about Lindsay is her ability to approach these topics from a very grounded and realistic perspective. We can get really hung up with ideas like co-sleeping and bed sharing as a vehicle towards secure bond and attachment with our child. But actually, that is not a guarantee for a secure attachment, nor is attachment a one-trick pony or set of skills that we engage or employ in order to guarantee or secure a bond with our child. So much attachment information and research is woven into these conversations with Lindsay, and it is incredibly valuable. I encourage you, get a warm cup of tea, strap your shoes on, whatever you're doing right now as we're spending this time together, and get ready for this really empowering conversation with Lindsay. We all envision ourselves as the perfect mom, nurturing, happy, and loving all the time. When reality hits and we find ourselves frustrated, resentful, and full of rage, that can lead us into a full-on shame spiral. The truth is, you don't have to be perfectly peaceful all the time to be a good mom, but we can help you understand and handle your rage and repair after the hard moments. Dr. Ashri Nareem, Psyched Mummy, and I have helped thousands of parents get to the root of their anger. As moms ourselves, we understand how the rage monster sneaks up in frustrating moments. As therapists, we also understand the tools and strategies you can use to prepare and prevent that from happening. That's why we set out to create All the Rage, raising kids with less anger and more connection. A course to give you everything you need to know about how to keep calm as a parent in the most difficult situations. When we say everything, we mean everything, from understanding what makes you more prone to anger, how your thoughts influence your anger, ways to stop the outbursts before they happen, as well as what to do in the most triggering moments, and how to prepare when you lose your cool. This course is made to be digestible and simple. We even include a downloadable workbook to help you work your way through it. We're confident that this course will change your life so confident that we want you to buy it risk-free, meaning if you don't love it, you can get your money back. Nobody is perfect, but we want you to be the parent you want to be. 
Head to happyasamother.co slash rage to learn more. That's happyasamother.co slash rage. Welcome to the Happy as a Mother podcast, where we are dedicated to helping you cope with the load of motherhood. I'm your host and registered psychotherapist, Erica Jossa. Let's work together in letting go of shame and guilt, accepting where we are in our journey, and moving towards becoming the women we want to be. We will hear from experts, learn practical tips, and listen in on honest conversations. Please note that the information shared in this podcast is for educational purposes only and should not replace the advice of your healthcare provider. Okay, let's dive in. Lindsay, welcome back. If you're listening and you didn't catch our first, you know, time around talking about holistic sleep and some of the expectations around baby sleep, encourage you to go take that in. For those who are coming new to this episode and have not heard from you yet, let's share a little bit about your platform, how long you've been specializing in holistic sleep. Yeah, I've been in this space supporting families, I guess, for 20 years, starting off as a pediatric nurse and then a public health nurse. I'm also an IBCLC of 10 years, and I've been supporting families with sleep for probably about 15 years online, in person, and I'm the author of three sleep books, and I'm mostly found these days teaching sleep coaches, actually. So I teach a major international program and, you know, in my spare time, I'm doing a PhD. So that's, that's me. (laughs) Yes. No, I love it. You're keeping busy. It sure sounds like, but to have a really a more in-depth listen on Lindsay's journey and some of the underpinnings of her philosophy, I encourage you to go check out the first part of our interview together on holistic sleep. And I'd love to just dive right in here and others can catch up and go on back and and tune in. When we were talking holistic sleep and when we were talking about setting up this interview, I really picture sleep, the topic of sleep on this continuum, right? Where we've got like your cry it out, very extreme extinguation sort of behavioral training to like families that like co-sleep and and or bed share and you're going to help me untangle the difference here up and through until like their kids are, you know, up there in age. So I feel like there's quite a continuum and lots of gray areas in between. But when we're talking responsive parenting or we're talking holistic sleep, are we automatically talking bed sharing and co-sleeping or not? Absolutely not. No. Okay. I, I think any absolutes. I'm not a big fan of really in anything, actually, because there are too many nuances that we need to think about. So first of all, families might not want to bed share. That's totally okay. And I'm not a big fan of these kind of checklists or like club entry requirements that, you know, in order to qualify as a a gentle or attachment or responsive parent, you have to do X, Y, Z. Um, yes. I'm not a fan of that because, you know, what if breastfeeding has been a disaster? Are you still a gentle parent if your 
bottle feeding? Of course you are. Mm. What about if you have a slip disc and you can't wear your baby in a baby carrier? Are you still a gentle parent? Of course you are. It's ridiculous. Right. So yeah. we, we definitely don't need to join some sort of co-sleeping club. So there's that piece. There's also the fact that, you know, for some children, there isn't enough worldwide data looking at the factors that make bed sharing more or less safe. And so for some children, we know that it's actually less safe to do that. So, you know, if you are, I don't know, if you're a narcoleptic and you're taking sleeping medication, it's probably not a great idea to bed share. If you have a, you know, a painful condition and you're on sedating strong painkillers, it's probably not a great idea to bed share. If you're a smoker, it's probably not a great idea to bed share. And the list goes on and on. Yes. So no, we definitely are not talking about being respectful or gentle or holistic always equals bed sharing. Absolutely not. Okay. And I love to demystify that or sort of pierce the veil on that yeah. belief because I think that in this gentle parenting, responsive parenting space, we can get really caught up on proximity being the gateway to attachment and bonding. And I just call BS on that in my profession. And, and like lots of other research suggests all the other ways that we bond and attach with our baby. Proximity is not the cornerstone. Responsiveness and other things play a role, but certainly does not need to be attached to form that bond. Like attached to you physically, I mean, like, yeah, I yeah. mean, you know, attachment is a process. It's not an event. It's not one singular moment or no, trick or thing we do. Right? Absolutely not. And, you know, it is very much about, you know, getting it right more often than we get it wrong. So gentle, responsive attachment parents get it wrong. For sure we do. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Do I lose it with my kids? Hell yeah. Right. Like, they drive me absolutely crackers sometimes and I want to move out. You know, I want to go move into the shed in the in the garden. Yeah. Just me and the dogs. Sounds like heaven sometimes. <laughs> I think you're so right. I think it can be so polarizing. And, you know, then what happens is people who get mum rage and who yeah. feel trapped and who feel frustrated feel like terrible humans because yeah. they don't want this little person you know, attached to them and in their bed all day and all night. Or, you know, we, yes. we can really heap coals on ourselves, can't we? Because mm -hmm. we sort of make it very binary. You're either gentle or you're not. You're bed sharing or you're not. But actually, all of us have good and bad moments in generally good or bad definers in terms of our parenting. And yeah. similarly, we can dip in and out of bed sharing. A few people know that my littlest was diagnosed with cancer when she was three. And actually mm. for us, that meant that we dipped in and out of bed sharing for a really long time because of the context and, you know, the environmental stresses that were going on. Right. It wasn't like a binary thing. It's every single night is a decision and it's a negotiation like, oh, I know how this night's going to play out. Screw it. Just come into the bed. I've had enough. I can't, <laughs> I can't do it. Let's just yeah. wing it. And that's parenting, isn't it? We are just winging it right. a lot of the time. Yeah. And it brings me back to a conversation that I'd had on the podcast, an episode on in making informed decisions around baby's sleep. And I sat with a psychologist and we really unpacked some of the different studies and what informs our sleep philosophy and things from a really neutral standpoint. Like, you know, 
the different camps polarize and use different pieces of research to sort of stake their claim on something. And we really hash it out and talk about it. And really what that conversation came down to, and we'll make sure to link it in the show notes so that if you'd like to tune in, you can find it, is that you have to find what works for your family. And if you are co-sleeping or bed sharing, and I'd love for us to distinguish the two, if you're doing that out of absolute survival and it's prolonged and you don't like it and it's causing its own set of problems, then we reevaluate the structure. But then I have other families that I work with in my therapy practice who are a bed sharing family and that's their value system, their philosophy, their approach, and they love it. And it has been a choice that they have felt agency and empowered to make. And that's what they want and desire, right? It's not something that they feel like they have to do or they're trapped in because of the sleep crisis that they're in. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think sometimes bed sharing is really pragmatic. And I think sometimes we do choose to do that in a crisis because sometimes if kids are sleeping, well, I mean, probably normally, but it's really difficult. Right. Then actually doing anything that takes longer and is harder to resettle them in the night, sometimes people don't have the capacity for that. So sometimes in those situations, actually bed sharing is the pragmatic choice to get everybody the most amount of rest that we can right now. And yes, it might not be a long-term decision, but actually, do you know what? Right now, we don't have the capacity for anything else. Mm -hmm. And that's sensible. But also, people shouldn't feel like they kind of have to go underground. And and this is where Mm -hmm. there's been a more recent guideline on bed sharing from the uh, Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine and the AAP now also talk about, you know, being a little bit more open-minded about bed sharing Mm, and a bit more nuanced Mm -hmm. about it. And I think that's really helpful because we know that if we tell people not to do something that they're doing because they're trying to just get by, they're surviving. If we just tell them not to do it and we say, oh, this is awful, this is terrible, you're putting your child at risk, that there were some horrible adverts you know, in in the past couple of decades, you know, using the parent headboard, the bed frame as as like a tombstone. Um, And there Mm. there were some horrible, horrible public health campaigns to try and dissuade people from bed sharing that were basically implying that if you do this, it's, it's like a path to certain death, frankly. Right. Like this choice equals death or severe harm to your baby or something. And then when when a parent, then when you make a, like that, you're saying like pragmatic decision out of like capacity, and you're like, I'm choosing my own sleep over my baby's safety, and it becomes this whole narrative, doesn't it? That is so damaging for parents. So yeah. damaging. And the trouble is when we take that approach, it shuts down conversation. And yes. so you know, the UK don't get everything right. <laughs> we get lots of things wrong, in fact. But I mm. do like the UK approach to handling conversations about bed sharing. So the way we handle it in the UK is very different to the United States. We share information and we talk about the situations where it's more risky to bed share with a baby. And we talk about if you do bring your baby into bed with you, here are the things that you can do to make it as safe as possible, bearing in mind that basically we can never guarantee safety, right? Because 
life isn't safe. We can't eliminate all risk ever. Mm -hmm. You know, every time we get in a car, we're taking a risk. So we're never talking about risk elimination. We're talking about risk reduction. And actually what happens when we have those more open, nuanced conversations is that we enable families to make informed choices. Whereas if we don't allow people to feel free to talk about it, they may end up doing something that actually ends up being less safe. I remember very early on when I was a a public health nurse, a health visitor, we call them in the UK, and I was um, visiting a a family with a 10-day-old baby and the mother looked exhausted and she said, oh, I'm so tired because I'm trying desperately not to bring my baby into the bed with me because I know I shouldn't. You know, she was almost behaving like she thought she was going to get told off by me. She wasn't. Um, mm. She didn't know me. She didn't know who she was talking to. But um, mm-hmm. she said, oh, what I'm doing is I'm sitting on the sofa holding my baby on the sofa at night because I'm trying to stay awake. And I know if I bring the baby into the bed, I'm just going to fall asleep. Now, that's exactly the sort of thing that happens when we don't have open conversations about bed sharing. People yeah. end up doing things that are even more risky because we yes. know falling asleep on the sofa with your baby is risky. It's not a safe yes. place for them to be. You should you should always avoid falling asleep on the sofa with a baby if you can. But yeah, yes. people go underground. They do. Well, I like as you're speaking, I concretely can remember this conversation I had with a nurse and uh, with my firstborn, and it's so funny because with my secondborn, <laughs> totally different story. I just got him to sleep. Nurses would walk in, I'd be like, "You're not touching that child." <laughs> he just went to sleep, you know, like totally different set of confidence. But with my firstborn, thinking like, "Okay, you know, he's got to go on his back down to sleep," and you know, I can't. I'm not supposed to like sleep with him in the bed and hold him and whatever. But then. All of that being communicated to me, but then in practice, in those first like two, three nights we spent in the hospital originally, it was like, oh, well, if baby doesn't like to sleep, then sleep with them on your chest and this is how we do it and we'll tuck them in like this and you're like on the bed and whatever. And I'm like, wait, my brain can't comprehend. So like everything that I've been taught to do now is not what we're doing And then there's no real conversations about how to do this safely. So I'm so happy that we're here and we're sort of like demystifying or bringing some structure to this for families. One of the distinctions I want to make is bed sharing and co-sleeping. Now, from what I gather, bed sharing is like baby's actually physically in the bed with you, whereas co-sleeping, baby is in proximity to you in the same room, whether it's a bassinet or we had a co-sleeper that attached to the side of our bed, actually. Is that a fair distinction? Yeah, absolutely. And co-sleeping also includes sofa sleeping. And that's one of the problems we have with some of the data and the literature around SIDS is that sometimes when they're talking about co-sleeping, they're not defining the parameters. Not all the studies are defining the parameters in the same way. So some Mm. studies are talking about bed sharing. Some studies are talking about babies being in the same room. Some studies are talking about any situation where the baby is near the parent, be that on the sofa, in the co-sleeper crib, in the bed, and they're mashing it all together. So that's not very helpful because we know that there are some situations that are less safe than others. Right. When we're talking about bed sharing, I much prefer using the term bed sharing because it's unambiguous. We're talking about babies being in the parental bed 
And I tend to say room sharing if I don't mean bed sharing. Okay. Co-sleeping tends to be this nebulous word that people get Mm. confused. It's like a catch-all word for like not well-defined for these terms. Okay. Absolutely. I gotcha. I'm just like reflecting on my experience with my my littles and, you know, this whole back to sleep campaign and all the research. So I actually had Emily Oster, Professor Emily Oster on a New York Times bestselling author on as well. And she touches on this co-sleeping a little bit and goes through the research and things. And what she really boils down in her book is what you're drawing attention to here is that we can do this in a more, I say safe way, but in the least risky way. And and I feel like Infant sleep has risk to it inherently, whether they're, you know, back to sleep, whatever. Like SIDS isn't fully understood from what I can gather. Like there are variable factors. So in the least risky way, and that one of the sort of really hard and fast rules that we can try to follow is not falling asleep with our infant on a couch because that is one of the highest risk places to share. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. But I think one of the things that we need to remember is that statistics are just that and there are statistical outliers. So one of the tricky things is that sometimes we can do everything right and yet Mm. there's still a negative outcome. And that's really difficult because it confuses the data as well, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. It's really about reducing that risk and not eliminating it. And I love how you bring light to that. One of the most relentless mental loads is being the juggler of medical appointments. Researching doctors, reading reviews, making phone calls to book appointments, it's a lot of stress when you're already juggling so much invisible labor. That's what makes ZocDoc great for moms. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare hundreds of types of highly rated in-network doctors, including mental health providers, and instantly book appointments with them online. ZocDoc has doctors of all specialties, including therapists, psychiatrists, and psychologists, with verified patient reviews so you can make sure they check all your boxes. You can find mental health providers who offer in-person appointments, virtual consults, or both, whatever works for you. The typical wait time to see a mental health provider booked on ZocDoc is just four days. Sometimes you can even book same-day appointments. Make juggling appointments easier with ZocDoc. Go to ZocDoc.com slash MomWell and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated therapist, psychiatrist, or psychologist today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash MomWell. ZocDoc.com slash MomWell. Mealtime with kids can be stressful, but with Factors Delicious ready-to-eat meals, it can be a lot easier. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. No worrying about ingredients and nutrition, no prep, no mess, and no cooking while wrangling toddlers. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Factor can even be tailored to your schedule. 
customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Take the stress out of meals with Factor. Head to factormeals.com slash momwell50 and use code momwell50 to get 50% off your first box. Want to get smarter about your health but feel overwhelmed trying to separate fact from fiction? We hear a lot about gut health, microbiomes, and other nutrition topics, but taking the time to research these is exhausting, and there's a lot of misinformation out there. The Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast makes it so much easier to get the information you need. With the help of world-leading scientists, the podcast gives you research-based information so you can make informed choices for yourself without pressure and guilt. People are loving Zoe Science and Nutrition. Listener Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others accessing quality information about their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. When we're talking bed-sharing specifically now, the impression that I get is like, no, don't do it. It equals, you know, harming your baby. It feels like it brings up this very strong reaction and response in me of all the warnings that I've received about it. One of the things that I saw that you had mentioned is looking across cultures and like how other people sleep and is this something that has been done and how are they doing it and, you know, not wiping out a whole generation by doing it in a way that is mitigating some of that risk. So I'd love for us to talk through some of those safer approaches. Yeah. And it's such an important point because a lot of the literature about sleep can be very Western and actually white centric as well. Mm. And we sometimes forget that actually, first of all, most of the world is not white. Most of the world's population is not white. And most of the world bed share. And Mm -hmm. The thing we really have to remember with that is that actually in countries where bed sharing is the cultural norm, rates of SIDS are really low. And, you know, I think when we have particularly a US-centric view of bed sharing, you can get the idea that actually bed sharing is risky, it's terrible. Mm. And it's a difficult one because the US rates of SIDS are actually, relatively speaking, fairly high that there are some countries that have higher rates of SIDS than others. The UK is much lower and some of the Scandinavian countries, but then a lot of Asian countries have really, really low rates of SIDS. So for example, Japan, where bed sharing is basically normal for everybody, have really, really low rates of SIDS. So it's clearly not just about the bed sharing. And that's what I meant earlier when we're thinking about statistics. You know, Mm. we don't have randomized control trial data about sleep because it wouldn't be ethical. You know, we can't control for all the confounding variables. So all we have are these big case control studies, retrospective case control studies, where we can kind of look at the variables in one population. So the population of children who tragically die of SIDS and then match those with case controls from children who don't and look at basically what are the differences. And that's how we come up with these risk factors. So essentially, I'm massively trivializing 
you know, 30 years worth of data. Um, yes. That's really intelligent data. But essentially what they found is that in the group of children who are more likely to have died of SIDS, we find certain variables are more common, like smoking, babies being on their fronts, babies being not exclusively breastfed. You know, all of these variables, they are risks. They're not absolutes. And just because you put your baby down on their tummy and you're a smoker is not a certain pass mm -hmm. to SIDS, mm -hmm. thank goodness. Okay. And that's really important, especially when we think about the parents who do everything right. They, mm -hmm. they kind of follow all the guidelines. And, you know, I can say this because I'm the parent of two exclusively breastfed children. And we know that exclusively breastfed children, for example, are far less likely to be diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. It's one of the specific cancers that they are less likely to be diagnosed with. And what was my youngest exclusively breastfed child diagnosed with? Now, does that mean that the data's wrong? Of course not. Of course mm -hmm. not. She's a statistical outlier. It means that children who are formula fed are more likely to get those things, but it doesn't mean that breastfed children never do. And in the same way with safe sleep, you can put your child down on their back and not smoke and, you know, all those things. Mm -hmm. And and yet, you know, some children, for reasons we don't fully understand, still very sadly pass away. Mm -hmm. And that's a bit morbid. But actually what we're saying here is that we need to be aware of the risks. So the riskier situations, and we need to concentrate on the things that are within our control. But we need to be mindful of the fact that Actually, in many cultures around the world, babies sleep in bed with their parents just as a matter of course. And actually, their rates of SIDS are really low. Mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. you know, while we're talking about this really difficult and triggering subject, it is also really important to say that SIDS remains a rare event. It's, mm -hmm. it, you know, sometimes I think parents can get the idea that this is really common. It's not. It's mm -hmm. not common at all. But of course, we have to try and protect our littles by doing as many of the, you know, risk reducing activities that we possibly can, bearing in mind that some things are out of our control. And to do some of these things, to choose bed sharing, for example, in a way that is mitigating as many risks as you can, is not you choosing some you know, way that is going to cause harm or, you know, any of that. Like that decision does not equal you going against what is best for your child essentially Absolutely. is what I'm trying to get to. And I think about the conversation I had with Emily Osser where she talks about how a lot of the situations when they're looking at, you know, these SIDS type situations and research and trying to understand the variables in that event that took place Things like abuse of alcohol or parent not being totally sober and alert and able to be responsive because of their state and things like that all play a role. And I know that the clients that I work with are more on the hypervigilant side doing everything they possibly can to mitigate risk. And so we're talking major differences here in terms of the safety or the approach in which we're doing these things, right? Yeah, 100%. Mm -hmm. It's really just about giving parents good information. And I think sometimes we can infantilize parents. We can sort of mm -hmm. not give them all the information because 
we think, oh, they can't understand it or they won't be able to deal with it or they might be upset. Do you know, we're tough. Parents, women, we're tough, right? We, mm-hmm. we give birth. We, we do hard things. Uh, we yeah. can take it. I think really what we're saying in this conversation is actually let's just have the information that we need to make an informed choice. And it's a choice that we can live with as a family. And we've thought about the options and we don't just feel railroaded into either you must bed share because otherwise you're a terrible parent or you must not bed share because otherwise you're a terrible parent. It's, yes. it's, it's actually much more, you know, living with that nuance, I think. Mm-hmm. I completely agree. And in your experience then, are there configurations or sort of practical little things such as I know a friend of mine who they're a co-sleeping or bed-sharing family and they went and got this big king size, more firm, very flat mattress. So is there sort of like an ideal setup in that way? And to piggyback on that, is there an age at which this becomes more appropriate or is there any data there? Um, So, I mean, all SIDS guidelines apply to children up to the age of one. So that's quite a a quick one to answer. Mm. It's funny, isn't it? Because nothing magic happens between them being 11 months and 30 days and being right. one year. I mean, but but it, it's just looking at the statistics. So lots of people bed share on and off until their child grows out of the need to bed share. There is literally no evidence at all that bed sharing beyond a certain age is going to cause harm. It's not going to make them odd or psychologically disturbed or dependent. There is literally no data that supports that. And if you think about it, you know, as a human race, we have been walking the planet in some form of homo sapiens for hundreds of thousands of years. And of course, everybody used to bed share. You know, six million Mm. years ago, the earliest humans did not have homes. They didn't have sleep trainers. They didn't have apps. They didn't have the snoo they didn't have all this stuff. <laughs> they just would have, you know, snuggled down for warmth and all slept together. So we can ditch any concern that if our seven-year-old, if our 11-year-old is still in bed, either permanently or occasionally, that there's something a bit wrong with them. But your earlier question was around... Sort of the environment in the which we do this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So how can you make it work? I mean, I think definitely having a really big bed. I heard from somebody from Japan that actually when you buy a mattress in Japan, there's like a, a guide to how big the mattress needs to be. And it's got like these little stick figures depicting how many people are going to be in the bed. And that guides your decision-making process about how big your bed is. I love that. That's so interesting. Yeah. Because it's so normal. You just think, okay, well, there's going to be four people in the bed. Okay. So therefore we need a three meter wide bed or or whatever. So definitely get the biggest bed that you can afford and have space for, number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, you don't necessarily have to do it all the time. So lots of people have a kind of a part-time or a flexible bed sharing arrangement where their child might start off the night in their own cot or crib. And then, you know, the first wake up after the parents have gone to bed, the parents are like, right, screw it. You're coming in the bed. That's okay. That's part-time bed sharing. And it's really pragmatic for a lot of people. It means they can get a bit of an evening, you know, have some adult time, uh, but then also they can maximize their sleep later as well. Right. Sometimes the 
one parent, you know, whether it's dad or the other mum or who, whatever the family looks like, maybe the other parent leaves the bed and has another bed. So that's kind of like a musical beds configuration. And although that sounds really disruptive, again, it works really well for some families. They're totally okay with it. They know it's a season and they can live with it. And for other families, they have kind of like a floor bed. So they might set up a mattress for their child right next to their bed. So I guess it is technically bed sharing, but also everybody's got a little bit of designated mattress space so that they feel a little bit of a degree of separation, which can be helpful. Or it can be a way of transitioning a child away from bed sharing into more independent sleep as well. So you can use it, you know, in a bi-directional kind of way. Yes. And then, of course, once they're mobile, you also do then need to think about, well, actually, what else is in the room? Do I need to baby proof the room? We shouldn't be having beds up against walls. So we shouldn't Mm. have the bed in the corner, for example, because they can roll down and get trapped. So ideally, the bed, you know, needs to be away from the wall, which, you know, it it can be trickier in smaller bedrooms. I appreciate that. But yeah, yeah. Just, just a few sort of safety things to think about, really, if you're if you're yeah. thinking about doing it. Well, and it sounds like, again, just like with so many things that we've discussed already, is this is really going to be unique to the family, Absolutely. their own setup, whether they have the ability. Like I know many of my clients and moms who have moved to a different room with the baby to not disrupt the other partner, and they'll bed share there throughout the night as they feed. And that might be for the first year, and then they kind of reset after that. And I love that this can be fluid and flexible as needed. I know when I first brought my littles home, once they kind of got their night and day sorted out a little bit, for my own anxiety, kept them in a co-sleeping cot beside my bed. And then usually when they could like move around a little bit and I knew that they could kind of like fend for themselves in our bed a little more, felt more comfortable than being in the bed. I was really conscious of things like covers and I felt anxious about blankets. Like that was a big piece of it too. But I love this openness to have a conversation and to say, you know, we can do this and be empowered to do this in a way that we feel like we have some agency and it is not equal to choosing harm in any way. This is normalized in many other countries and, you know, finding what works for your family is at the core of this. Absolutely. No black and whites. No thank you. I, Lindsay, I could pick your brain all day long. I I need to respect your time. I want to respect your time. And I'm going to leave us here with this, but I know that you've got guides and all kinds of resources for people. So where can they find you and your resources, your books to do more of a deep dive into your work if they're seeking you out? My books are a great place to start. So let's talk about your new family sleep is for sort of pregnancy to 18 months and then still awake is my book for toddlers to tweens. And that's actually got a one massive chapter on, you know, stopping night feeding and gentle night weaning and moving kiddies out of the bed respectfully. I dive into, you know, some of the ideas and thoughts that I've had over the years about sleep training, but again, in a, in a not judgmental, shaming way. So that there's lots of information in those. They, you know, Amazon is evil, but <laughs> at least it's easy to find books on Amazon. And yeah. then obviously there's loads of free information on my Instagram as well. That's usually the easiest place for people to get a sense. What you see is what you get with me. So if you like my Instagram, that's who They'll I am. like your your products yeah. and your additional resources. <laughs> yeah. 
I thank you for being here. We're going to link all of that in the show notes. And oh, goodness, I'm I'm sure I'll brainstorm something else that we can pick your brain about at a future date. But thank you for your time and, uh, and being here with our community. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. I could chat with Lindsay all day long. She is so down to earth, so relatable, and brings such a unique perspective to this topic of sleep. I can distinctly remember some of those early, especially first-time mom moments around sleep and the decision whether to sleep train or co-sleep and the sleep deprivation. The stakes felt incredibly high and it was a very challenging time. If you are in this, I hope that you found these two interviews with Lindsay incredibly valuable. And if you know somebody who is currently in the early stages of postpartum, I would ask that you share this information with them. I really want to get the message out there to moms, to parents, that if your child is not sleeping well, or if they are waking, or if you guys are struggling with sleep deprivation and sleep is a major topic in your home, it is not your fault. You are not failing. And there are approaches to sleep that can align with whatever your value system is and your philosophy is. So thank you for tuning into these episodes with Lindsay. And I encourage you to pause this episode even right now and share it with the first mama that comes to mind. We'll see you back here next week. Just a reminder that as you're reflecting this week and in the meantime, if you feel like you need added support, we have our Happiest Mother Wellness Center with mom therapists who have experience like you but education in working with adjustment to motherhood that are available remotely to support you through this unlearning and reparenting journey that we're all on in parenthood. Our wellness center currently serves British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Ontario, and we are expanding nationwide over the coming months. And while our team is specialized in perinatal and maternal mental health, They also specialize in things like trauma, anxiety, depression, relationship challenges. So there is such a deep level of experience in our team and I learn from them every day. To book your free 15-minute consult, head to happyasamother.co slash book. That's happyasamother.co slash book. I'll see you right back here next week where Joanna Faber and Julie King are joining us again to discuss how to manage whining. If whining gets to you in the same way that it gets to me, make sure to mark it on your calendar as you and I have a date right back here next week to hear from Joanna Faber and Julie King. I can't even begin to tell you how happy and honored I am that you choose to spend your time here with me each week. If you're looking for the resources and things that we're discussing today's show, you can find them in the show notes, which is linked in the episode description, or you can head directly to happyasamother.co slash podcast and find all of the show notes there. If you're looking for support and connection with other moms, you can head over to facebook.com slash groups slash happy as a mother and join our Facebook community. This community is filled with women just like you and I who want to support and uplift one another through our postpartum journey. 
And until next episode, Mama, I want you to know, keep showing up. You're doing a great job. Settling is not an option for Everything I desire is already mine. What if you can have it all? Because every day is for the girls. Hello, hello. Welcome to For the Girls podcast, hosted by Victoria Alario, For the Girls Who Want More. Listening to For the Girls will have you ready to raise the bar, stop settling for the bare minimum, and start believing you can have it all and step into the 2.0 version of you. You can catch a new episode of For the Girls every Monday across all podcast platforms. Until next time, girls.